This is Evidence-Based GI, and I'm Phil Schoenfeld, Editor-in-Chief. Today, we'll be discussing the use of upadacinitinib, a JAK1-specific inhibitor, for the treatment of Crohn's disease with Dr. Rahul Dalal, instructor in medicine at Harvard Medical School, about the summary that he wrote with our associate editor, Jessica Allegretti, in the July issue of Evidence-Based GI. And that's a summary entitled, Upadacinitinib is effective for the induction and maintenance of remission of moderate to severe Crohn's disease. And it's summarizing the recent seminal RCTs published in the New England Journal of Medicine by Ed Loftus et al. So welcome, Dr. Dalal. And as we always do, let's just start by talking about why this is an important topic for our listeners and why this is an important study. Thanks for having me. I would say one of the key features of this study is is that upadacitinib is the first JAK inhibitor and also the first oral agent that's been approved for the treatment of moderate to severe Crohn's disease. So this novel mechanism, JAK1 inhibition, it targets Janus kinase, and Janus kinase consists of intracellular enzymes that mediate T-cell-dependent activity and downstream cytokine inflammation, and upadacitinib blocks cytokine activity downstream from these pathways. And it's particularly important to have a novel mechanism like this because many patients may fail treatments such as anti-TNF agents or other mechanisms. So having another having a new mechanism of action can be helpful to refractory patients. We've seen that upadacitinib has been effective, very effective for the treatment of ulcerative colitis, uh, including those who failed anti-TNF therapies. So this is, in my practice, I've considered upadacitinib in those that fail anti-TNFs and those patients that might have disease phenotypes similar to ulcerative colitis, such as Crohn's colitis. But ultimately, uh, the studies that uh, Dr. Allegretti and I summarized in this month's issue is conclude that patacitinib is effective for the induction of clinical remission in patients with moderate to severe Crohn's disease. And it's also effective for the maintenance of clinical remission and inducing mucosal improvement and remission based on endoscopic evaluations. Yeah, I mean, this is really a big advance in our management of Crohn's disease. And the three studies that you review in your summary are the three studies that led the FDA to approve upadacinitinib for the management of Crohn's disease. And that approval was just granted, I believe, about a month or so ago. Specifically, the question here is, is upadacinitinib effective for the induction and maintenance of remission of moderate to severe Crohn's disease? This was examined in three clinical trials, which were named the UXL, the UXEED, and the UENDURE trials. Now, the first two, UXL and UXEED, were 12-week double-blind placebo-controlled trials where patients received ubidacitinib 45 milligrams per day orally or a placebo, and then were assessed at the end of 12 weeks for remission based on the Crohn's disease activity index, which had to be reduced to less than 150 for them to be considered a responder. And also, 
endoscopic response was looked at with the simple endoscopic score for Crohn's disease. And for endoscopic response, the patients had to have at least a 50% decrease in their score from baseline at week 12. For the maintenance of remission study, the U-Endure study, patients could be on 15 or 30 milligrams once daily or placebo, and they were followed for a total of 52 weeks after they at least had a clinical response to see if they had received clinical or achieved clinical remission. So are there any things about the study design that you think are particularly unique and deserve emphasis? Yeah, I would say one of the key features is that all of the patients in UXSEED had previously failed anti-TNF agents, and approximately half of those in UXL had failed anti-TNF agents. So in other words, this is a bit, this was a treatment refractory population, and despite that, upadacitinib did uh, perform very well in these patients. Also, in terms of maintenance treatment options, the U-Endure trial assessed both 15 milligram and 30 milligram doses, which were both effective compared to placebo, and uh, both doses can be considered for maintenance of remission for these patients. Yeah, I think it's really important for our listeners to understand that we're talking about difficult to treat, treat patients here. These are patients with moderate to severe Crohn's disease based on their Crohn's disease activity index that 75% of them had previously failed anti-TNF therapies or other biologics. And these treatments actually demonstrated efficacy. And as you said, with the U-Endure trial, just highlighting the fact there are a couple of different doses that you can use in remission. Because specifically, as you said, for the 12-week RCTs for induction of remission, ubidacinib achieved clinical remission in 50% in the UXL trial versus just 29% with placebo. So that's a big magnitude of response. In the UXSEED trial, it was 39% versus 21%, so essentially doubling the response rate. And if you just focus on that endoscopic response, where there's at least a 50% decrease from baseline in endoscopic appearance, that was 45% in the upadacinib group versus 13% in the placebo group for UXL, 35% in the upadacinib group versus 4% in UXSEED. And obviously, that's important because ultimately getting mucosal healing is the endpoint we're seeking here. For the 52-week maintenance remission study, or what's called the U-Endure study, the 15 and 30 milligram doses were superior placebo to maintain remission, 37% with 15 milligram, as high as 48% with the 30 milligram daily dose versus only 15% for placebo. And then for the endoscopic response, was 40% with the 30 milligram dose versus only 7% with placebo. In terms of side effects, what is notable is that there was a significant numerical increase in the risk of herpes zoster infections, with ubidacinitinib, but there was no evidence of any cardiovascular or thromboembolic complications, which have been reported in older rheumatoid arthritis patients who are using UPA. 
when you look at all this data, you know, how are you going to use this in your practice for Crohn's disease? It's a good question because we have so many treatments now for OTC and Crohn's disease. So I would say, I mean, first we have minimal real-world data in, and we have limited data regarding different phenotypes. So, But we do have a lot of encouraging data from ulcerative colitis. So I would favor using this in patients who might behave more like ulcerative colitis, specifically those with Crohn's colitis. I might hesitate more regarding those with isolated small bowel disease, as well as significant perianal or, or fistulizing disease. Because it doesn't seem like we have enough data to to support the use of apatacitinib yet in those specific phenotypes. Obviously, we'll, we'll be using this agent in patients who have anti-TNF's failure uh, due to the label. And also, I would consider safety when considering apatacitinib, although the safety profile seems good, you know, considering the safety profile of other of the, of the other drug inhibitor, topacitinib, I might hesitate in those who are increased risk for cardiovascular events, BTE, and also... Um, I might hesitate in older individuals who might be in an increased risk of infections. Has insurance been much of an issue when you've prescribed this in patients with ulcerative colitis? Because I know this is an expensive medication. And also, you know, any other comments about what labs you always make sure to, to check as screening labs in these folks? I would say we haven't, I haven't observed too many insurance issues, at least in ulcerative colitis with upatacitinib. There's the occasional situation where topacitinib is still the preferred JAK inhibitor, but in most cases we have been able to get upatacitinib approved, assuming the patient has had a failure or intolerance of an anti-TNF medication. Importantly, I, I would make sure that these patients are vaccinated against their herpes zoster prior to initiating therapy, or at least near the time of initiating therapy. And I also check lipid levels at baseline and again at, at 12 weeks to monitor any dyslipidemia that could occur with upadacitinib. Right. I know there is a, a small risk that you could get a elevation of certain lipid levels, so you check that at baseline and again at 12 weeks. But I think otherwise... You know, just check CBC and a comprehensive metabolic profile as, as your screening tests in these folks. You know, what kind of stuff do you want to see looked at in future research studies? So I think we need specific research that specifically focuses, focuses on disease phenotypes of Crohn's disease. So patients with small bowel disease, patients with fistulizing disease, we need a better sense of how upadacitinib performs for those specific populations. Also, in terms of biologic and other advanced therapy positioning, we need head-to-head -head clinical trials as well as real-world comparative effectiveness studies to get a better sense if upadacitinib in direct comparison to other agents performs better or worse, and this can help guide our treatment selection. Sure. And I think there are some head-to-head -head trials that are planned because certainly, just in terms of numerically, the remission rate seen with upadacitinib, that's been higher, that's been, been been seen in other trials of these different therapies, but those have been placebo-controlled trials. We need to see how it does head-to-head. -head. And again, as you said, looking at how it does in fistulizing or perianal disease and in pregnant patients will be important. Any other major points that you think are important to emphasize? I would say, um, you know, 
for, for those who might be hesitant to use upadacitinib, you know, given that it's a brand new agent, I, I would strongly consider it in uh, patients with Crohn's colitis, potentially other phenotypes too, but specifically Crohn's colitis and those without risk factors for cardiovascular events or severe infections. I think it's important to consider what the patient preferences are regarding the route of administration because this is the first oral agent that was approved for Crohn's disease and that might have a positive impact on quality of life for many of patients for many patients so I think it's important to offer it as an op- as an option if the patient qualifies yep I, I think that's a real important one some patients definitely prefer an oral agent and even though it's just approved for Crohn's disease, you know, we have experienced going back multiple years using this firm toward arthritis and other inflammatory disorders and really have a pretty good sense that its safety profile is is appropriate given the severity of Crohn's disease. And I know one other point we talked about before is you can use either the 15 or 30 milligram dose as your maintenance dose. And we both have tended to use 30 milligrams as our maintenance dose. The higher dose seems to be very effective for maintaining remission. Thanks again for joining me today. And for our listeners, please remember to subscribe to Evidence-Based GI on your favorite podcast platform. Please follow us on Twitter at ACG underscore EBGI, where we host weekly tutorials on Wednesday evenings. And please look for the next new issue of Evidence-Based GI, which will be sent out by blast email on Wednesday, July 12th.